Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part two of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. We begin today by talking about the first massive blockbuster about sex of the 1990s. I've seen Pretty Woman a lot. I saw it for the first time when I was nine years old, almost 10. It was the first R-rated movie I ever saw in a theater. Most of the times that I've seen Pretty Woman in the 32 years since, all the times I caught bits of it on cable, and the few times I've put it on for comfort on a plane or when I couldn't sleep, I knew that I was supposed to be offended by aspects of it, or at least temper my enthusiasm for it by acknowledging that it was a problematic depiction of sex work. And tisk tisk, it's several different types of commodity fetishism. 
but I could never get over feeling kind of wowed by it. I always felt the excitement of that first viewing, which felt illicit even though I was accompanied by a parent. It felt like I was getting away with something. It felt like sneaking into the world of adults. Movies that imprint on you in childhood can be tricky things. Sometimes, as you age, they turn into guilty pleasures. Sometimes they make you cringe. Sometimes adults feel compelled to protect the purity of the youthful viewing experience, essentially refusing to age with the movie. I feel like the opposite thing has happened to me with Pretty Woman. There are things in this movie that I think only a child could find sincerely glamorous. The makeover montage, for instance, feels like it crosses over into a realm of irony. At the moment, Julia Roberts' Vivian gets a pizza delivered to the Lux boutique where she's shopping. And yet still, every time I watch it as an adult, I find new things in it to appreciate as an adult that resonate with me because of experiences I've had in my adult life. If anything, I've become more inclined to defend this film, not just as a guilty pleasure, but as a beautifully made romantic comedy that, like the films of the 1930s and 40s, which it is obviously a self-conscious update of, works better on the level of metaphor than as any kind of realistic depiction of sex work, and yet does have things to say about being a person that I recognize as being authentic. Today, we are going to talk about how Pretty Woman became a massive hit in 1990, the gender politics of this fantasy about love between a streetwalker and a corporate villain, as perceived then and as perceptible now, and the wild roller coaster of the early career of Julia Roberts. Condescendingly written off as a nepotism hire just months earlier, within a year of Pretty Woman's release, Roberts was considered the most bankable woman in movies, a controversial icon of 90s womanhood, and eventually, a basket case serial monogamist whose incredibly intense rush of fame could only crash and burn. Join us, won't you, for part two of Erotic 90s. Pretty Woman used to be called 3,000, as in the number of dollars that Richard Gere's Edward pays Robert's Vivian to spend just under a week living at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel with him. The title was not the only thing that changed significantly from the film's conception to its release. For one thing, as late as spring 1989, there were reports that Sean Connery was going to star. Instead, Gear was cast in what would be seen as a comeback role for him. Since we left him in erotic 80s, Gear's star had waned. As one profile put it, quote, he never stopped making movies, but from the public's point of view, the actor who peaked in 1982 with his critically acclaimed performance in An Officer and a Gentleman seemed simply to drop out. In the mid-80s, 
Gere had gone on a sort of spiritual political walkabout, visiting countries like Nicaragua to learn about their conflicts and plunging headlong into Tibetan Buddhism. Gere co-founded Tibet House in New York in 1988, and by the time he made Pretty Woman, he had established a deep personal friendship with the Dalai Lama. But he hadn't abandoned the material world. And in fact, he actively lamented his lapsed movie stardom. As Gere told Vanity Fair, I looked around and asked, why aren't I being offered certain movies? And the hard answer was, you're not box office, pal. You're fucked. Gere decided to accept the next three highly commercial scripts he was offered for what he called very crass reasons. The first script he chose was for Internal Affairs, a wild LAPD drama directed by Mike Figgis, in which Gear is excellent as one of the most cartoonishly evil cops in movie history. The second script was for Pretty Woman. He didn't need to do a third film to save his career. In Pretty Woman, Gear plays Edward Lewis, a corporate raider who comes to Los Angeles to close the acquisition of a family shipbuilding company, whose codger founder, played by 1930s romantic comedy legend Ralph Bellamy, doesn't want to sell. Edward escapes a schmoozy Hollywood Hills cocktail party by driving off in the insane sports car owned by his slimy lawyer, played by Jason Alexander, who was cast before Seinfeld was on the air. Edward doesn't know how to drive the car, and he doesn't know how to get from the canyon to his hotel in Beverly Hills. He pulls over and asks a woman for directions. The woman is Streetwalker Vivian, played by Julia Roberts. She ends up driving him back to Beverly Hills. The banter that ensues is typical of the film's approach to updating Depression-era romantic comedy for an era of cutthroat capitalism and double entendre about boners. Tell me, what kind of what kind of money you girls make these days? Ballpark. Can't take less than a hundred dollars. Hundred dollars a night. For an hour. An hour? You make a hundred dollars an hour and you got a safety pin holding your boot up? You gotta be joking. I never joke about money. Needs to do hot. Hundred dollars an hour. Pretty stiff. Here she reaches over and touches his crotch. Well, no, but it's got potential. About a month before Pretty Woman was released, Roberts would be nominated for an Oscar for Steel Magnolias. But when she was cast as Vivian, the only film most people had seen her in was the sleeper hit Mystic Pizza. She had received little press before 1990, and in it, she was invariably defined by her brother, Eric, whose Hollywood stardom was already waning. Those who did consider her as something other than Eric Roberts with hair were predictably gross. She is a kaleidoscope of body parts, more fun to look at than almost any other young actress, 
even the ones who are kept around strictly for sightings, wrote Alan Richman in GQ in December 1989. Richman's story ended with a joke, claiming Julia was a tease. Roberts arrived hungry, announcing, I'll do anything if you feed me. Thanks to me, she eats. I eagerly await the anything. I am still waiting. Julia Roberts fibs. Yikes! Even in stories like that, Roberts came off as sharp and unwilling to suffer fools. Male reporters could temper their lasciviousness just by quoting her. When another journalist marveled to Roberts about how her features seemed much smaller in real life, she fired back, that's why they call it the big screen, babe. Roberts was cast in what would become Pretty Woman based on the original script, which she described as a dark and dingy story in which Vivian was a drug addict who was rawly exploited by the businessman who hires her. That version did not have a romantic happy ending. Instead, as the LA Times put it, Prince Charming dumps her back on the street where he found her. That version of the movie, obviously, didn't get made. The script ended up at Disney, where executive Jeffrey Katzenberg, producer Laura Ziskin, a host of uncredited writers, and director Gary Marshall shaped it into something else. The actors added character elements and dialogue, too. Gear took credit for Edward's drollness, an aspect of his character that's lost on viewers who become incensed when he dryly tells a drooling boutique owner that he plans to spend a really offensive amount of money. In the original script, Gear said, Edward was a real prick, a user. He couldn't communicate. He had no sense of irony, and that worried us. I said, he's 40 years old. He's the best at what he does. He's been through everything we've been through. He's got to have a sense of irony. That self-humor is a real modern character trait that helped update this obviously 40s movie with characters you could believe in. Roberts kept trying to bring in elements of the research she had done for the gritty version of the movie. She had bought streetwalkers meals at Del Taco to get them to talk to her. When she later spoke about these women in an interview, she was solemn and patronizing. They have a view of men and life, she said, that no one should have to live with. That the actors were improvising their own dialogue on set was given not just a positive spin, but historical weight after the film became a hit. As the LA Times noted, Casablanca was another film that was famously constantly rewritten during the shoot. At first, said sole Pretty Woman credited screenwriter J.F. Lawton, the studio, quote, just wanted to lighten it a little bit. They wanted to give the woman some kind of victory, have her end up with a new life, like running a daycare center. Through subsequent drafts by him and other uncredited writers, the movie became what Lawton described as, quote, the Turner and Hooch of the 90s. 
What does that mean? I guess it doesn't matter because Lawton wrote a letter to the LA Times insisting that their reporters very selective quotes from our brief phone conversation give the mistaken impression that I was unhappy with the way Pretty Woman came out and that I fought against a happy ending. Rather than fight a happy ending, I suggested it. In any case, I certainly would rather have Disney rewriting my stories than The Times. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Lawton had been quoted as saying that he had initially wanted to write a film about the idea that men would rather buy women than respect them. Disney-fied or not, this is still part of the literal text of the movie. In the very first scene, Edward kicks his live-in girlfriend out of their apartment over the phone after she complains about feeling like his employee. This gives him the idea that Maybe what he really needs is a relationship that is openly transactional. On their first night together after a meeting on Hollywood Boulevard, a masterful sequence of romantic comedy tinged with melancholy, Edward's charmed by Vivian, bemused by her, and happy to be sexually serviced by her. So he proposes to hire her for the week. Vivian, I have a business proposition for you. What do you want? I'm going to be in town until Sunday. I'd like you to spend the week with me. 
Yes. Yes, I'd like to hire you as an employee. Would you consider spending the week with me? <laughs> I will pay you to be at my beck and call. Look, I'd love to be your beck and call girl, but um, you're a rich, good-looking guy. You could get a million girls free. I want a professional. I don't need any romantic hassles this week. If you're talking 24 hours a day, it's gonna cost you. Oh, yes, of course. All right, here we go. Give me a ballpark figure. How much? Six full nights, days two. Four thousand. Six nights at three hundred is eighteen hundred. You want days two? Two thousand. Three thousand. Done. Holy shit! We've already seen the shabby room Vivian shares with her roommate Kit, played by Laura San Giacomo in her first big movie after Sex Lies and Videotape. We know Kit has just spent their rent money on drugs, so we know Vivian needs this gig. What's less clear is if Edward is going to treat her like a human being. His inherent lack of respect for her job comes through such as when he assumes she's hiding drugs when she's really hiding floss, or when she says she slept so well she forgot where she was and he cracks, occupational hazard. Maybe this is what reviewers like Henry Sheehan, writing in The Hollywood Reporter, are referring to when they wrote things like, the movie displays an almost preternatural disregard for women's feelings. I must note that the dictionary definition of preternatural is beyond what is normal or natural, which suggests that there is a normal or natural level of disregard for a woman's feelings. In any case, I think this is an insanely inaccurate analysis of a movie that accomplishes a kind of magic trick of making a Bush senior era audience empathize with a streetwalker. That the movie respects Vivian more than Edward does becomes evident in the legendary scene in which she goes to a Rodeo Drive boutique in last night's Hollywood Boulevard costume, and the snooty shop girls refuse to help her. May I help you? I'm just checking things out. Are you looking for something in particular? No, well, yeah, uh, something conservative. Yes. You got my stuff. Thank you. How much is this? I don't think this would fit you. Well, I didn't ask if it would fit. I asked how much it was. How much is this, Marie? It's very expensive. It's very expensive. Look, I got money to spend in here. I don't think we have anything for you. You're obviously in the wrong place. Please leave. As you can hear, this scene ends with Vivian, hurt and angry, walking away while sentimental music plays on the soundtrack. There's no doubt that this scene has been constructed to engender empathy for Vivian. It makes the viewer feel, consciously or otherwise, that even if her job is something they disapprove of, 
even if they think the fact that she has sex for money makes her less than human, she still doesn't deserve to be treated that way. The character is given this dignity before she's given a makeover. But she is still given the makeover. And the fact that the movie shows fancy clothes making her life easier complicates the way audiences receive the message that she deserved to be treated well before her shopping spree. The later scene in which she returns in Rich Lady Drag to show up the mean shop girls, the most quoted scene in the movie, has been criticized for celebrating the capitalist system that allows a hooker to buy her way into respectability or for celebrating sex work as a means to luxury. Others have rolled their eyes at the idea that any streetwalker could really be transformed by new clothes. Even in a positive review, in which Vincent Canby seems absolutely gobsmacked by the, quote, breathtaking new screen presence of Roberts, the New York Times critic calls it a movie, quote, about a prostitute who really isn't, at least as far as the audience is concerned. She is. Instead, a bright, funny, incredibly healthy young woman who looks gorgeous. So, in his mind, a real prostitute couldn't be any of those things. The movie is so good at eroticizing conspicuous consumption that the Wall Street Journal's Julie Salomon went as far as to suggest it was being disingenuous when it wasn't portraying commodity fetishism. She wrote, The picture is at its best when it deals directly with its premise, that good things can come to those who spend. Pretty Woman dramatizes a number of tropes which romantic fiction has always alluded to, among them that sex can be bought and sexuality can be used as currency to trade for a luxury lifestyle. But the film also makes it pretty clear that Vivian was worthy of respect before she was weighed down with shopping bags and that the people who were impressed by her makeover are shallow and corrupt, including Edward, at least initially. What if Pretty Woman is actually a critique of a system that didn't see her as a human being until she bought her way in? In 1997, Richard Gere was asked about American Gigolo, and he said something that I think applies to the way a lot of people read Pretty Woman. Quote, You know, it's funny. I've had people come up to me over the years saying, thank you so much, that movie changed my life. And I think, oh, yeah, they had some internal transformation. And then they say, yeah, I went out and got a car, and I got clothes, and I got money, and I got... They didn't get the movie. Certainly, Pretty Woman suggests the soulless capitalism Edward has been practicing is a bad thing. Now, you might say that its advocacy of a kinder, gentler capitalism is a distinction without a difference. But in 1990, at this end-of-history moment when it seemed like the American way of life had won out against all comers and no one in American movies was questioning it, this all hit different. Edward's attempted hostile takeover of Morris Industries calls to mind Carl Icahn, who famously acquired former Howard Hughes plaything TWA 
and when this movie was released, was in the process of selling it off piece by piece. Gear's character has at least one senator in his pocket and is capable of using his government connections to screw the companies he's trying to acquire. At first, he's nothing but condescending to both the hotel manager and the manager of the boutique where he takes Vivian shopping. These service professionals are obsequious because that's what the ultra-rich expect. It would be a burden for a man like Edward to have to treat the people who perform services for him as though they were real human beings. Edward's character is largely defined by his relationship with his father, who abandoned him and who, we are told, died just a month before the events of the movie. They had been estranged for years, and Edward's clearly having a hard time with this, with his guilt, his regrets, and his grief. When parents die, it forces their adult children to reckon with their own lives. And when you understand that grief, you can see how deeply it informs this movie. Pretty Woman is a dead dad movie. Edward is changed not just by his transaction with Vivian, but by his encounter with Bellamy's Morse, who gives him access to the family business that his own dad never let him have. For decades, the media rolled their eyes about Gear's Buddhism, but in talking about his spirituality in 1990, he said something that should unlock something about how he plays the role in Pretty Woman. Quote, There's a major click one makes in one's brain and one's heart through this process of Buddhist practice. One begins to transform how one sees the other, not as a potential enemy, but as a loved one. Old man Morris clicks over from being Edward's enemy to being his surrogate father. And you can write this off as schmaltzy, but if you are a middle-aged person who misses their dead father, this is powerful. The last 30 years of Edward's life have been about being, as he puts it, very angry with my father. Over this week with Vivian, he comes to understand that he can choose another way to live. He undergoes a true transformation and at least gestures at trying to become a different kind of man. Vivian doesn't. She doesn't need to change who she is. She just needs to change clothes. He undergoes the greater transformation over the course of the narrative. He already treats women in his life like employees. He thinks it will simplify his life to actually pay a professional to behave the way he has been asking girlfriends and wives to relate to him all along. Towards the end of the film, he tries to reassign Vivian into one of these positions. He tries to turn her into a woman who will perform sexual services and escort him to social events because she is indebted to him for her apartment and a wardrobe. She rejects this, and she's right to, because their previous contract, in which he pays her $3,000 for six days and nights, is more honest. She tells him that he's now making a good offer, but she doesn't want an offer. She wants a romance. She has to challenge him to approach a relationship 
not as something he can schedule for when he has time for it and ignore when he doesn't, but as a give and take between human beings. Within the framework of a fantasy sexual transaction, Pretty Woman suggests that all sexual relationships can be transactional. And if you want to stop there, that's fine, as long as your partner in the transaction treats you the way you want to be treated. If the transaction starts to feel dehumanizing, you can reject this paradigm and reset the terms for the relationship. This is classic romantic comedy stuff. Due to an accident of the moment it was made, Pretty Woman is able to be more transparent about sexuality than movies like My Fair Lady or Ball of Fire. It's allowed to have its 22-year-old starlet make a joke about her gray-haired love interest not having a boner. But it's still doing all the stuff that philosopher Stanley Cavell wrote about in the context of comedies of remarriage like The Awful Truth and His Girl Friday in which two people who think they're not supposed to be in love have to face the, well, awful truth that they have a mutual recognition of one another that they can find in no one else and spend a whole movie figuring out what Cavell calls the terms of conversation that will allow them to have a relationship involving mutual respect. Edward and Vivian are two people who got into a business partnership believing it would protect them from having feelings. And instead, they get swept up on an emotional wave they can't control. Watching it in my 40s, I felt that this movie captured those first days when an attraction takes you by surprise and takes over your life better than any movie I've seen in a long time. And I felt a longing and a sense of loss. Because it's one thing that movies don't depict sexual activity anymore, but something they also don't do is depict adult relationships with any kind of depth of feeling. I know there are going to be people who listen to this and think I've absolutely lost my mind when I credit Pretty Woman with having any kind of depth or authenticity. But put aside for a minute, the ways in which this is a movie that equates sex with shopping and vice versa. And just look at the ups and downs in the relationship between Edward and Vivian. From the scene at the polo match where Jason Alexander finds out she's a sex worker and propositions her, to the fight Edward and Vivian have about that at the hotel, which ends with him confessing that he felt jealous watching her talk to Ralph Bellamy's grandson, to Edward's subsequent offer to make her a kept woman, which she rejects, to her heart-to-heart with Kit about this, in which, in a very Gen X moment, they laugh ironically at the idea that she could be Cinder-fucking-rella, to Jason Alexander's attempt to rape Vivian, which culminates in Edward punching him out and Vivian telling him, in essence, you can't hit every guy who dehumanizes me. Imagine that these are real people having these experiences, which I don't think is very difficult to do because I think both performances are very good, especially in this section of the movie. They're in this situation because she's a hooker and he's a John, but they're also not. Because in the larger emotional sense, this is stuff that happens between men and women all the time. It is not uncommon for a woman in a relationship with a man 
to constantly have to say, in essence, hey, I'm a human being. I'm just as much of a human being as you are, and I deserve just as much respect as you do from you and from the people you surround yourself with. And you can't just play whack-a-mole with people who don't believe that way or act that way. You have to be part of a larger solution toward equality between the sexes. If you can join me in that, we can be together. But if you're only capable of having a relationship in which you are important and I'm not, in which I have to accept your terms and you don't have to accept any of mine, then forget it. If there is something disingenuous about this movie's happy ending, it may be that we know that most people don't really change that much. Going forward, will Edward really treat Vivian better than any of the other women in his life who he didn't meet on Hollywood Boulevard? Of course, most who saw Pretty Woman in 1990 were not asking these questions as they left the theater. Most were too blown away by Julia Roberts, whose performance made her a -a once-in-a-generation instant star. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Pretty Woman was not supposed to be a world-beating hit. When it netted an A cinema score meaning that was the average grade that people gave the film when walking out of the theater, it was clear there would be good word of mouth. But no one could have predicted that a romantic comedy released in March would become one of the most reliable moneymakers of the whole year. In July, the film was still playing on over a thousand screens nationwide, at a time when, after four months, Even big hits were usually down to a couple of hundred theaters. This was the summer of Dick Tracy, Die Hard 2, Back to the Future 3, and Total Recall. Pretty Woman outgrossed all of them. In August 1990, Roberts co-starred in Flatliners, which was a moderate hit. The cast included Keither Sutherland, Julia's new boyfriend. The two would soon make a few now-legendary red carpet and award show appearances together where they wore the same floppy haircut. That same month, Pretty Woman crossed the $170 million mark and became the highest-grossing film ever released by Disney. Disney. 
Its domestic gross was about twice the final tally of the studio's massive hit of the previous year, The Little Mermaid. Disney bought a three-page ad in Variety, thanking every single person credited on Pretty Woman for this accomplishment. Gary Marshall joked, while Disney is saying somewhere in his grave, Pinocchio, no. A nice duck, no. It has to be a hooker as my highest grossing picture. Pretty Woman was widely heralded as good for the industry because it made so much money, both domestically and abroad, on just a $20 million budget. One thing that kept the costs down was that neither of its stars could demand high salaries. Gear needed a hit, and Roberts, when she was cast, was an unknown. When Pretty Woman was released, Roberts was already shooting another film that had gotten her for cheap, Sleeping with the Enemy. But going forward, her price would skyrocket. And Hollywood, desperate to latch on to new money-minting stars for a new decade, thought she was worth any price for a while. Her perceived value began to skyrocket before Pretty Woman's grosses sent Walt Disney rolling in his grave. The Hollywood buzz about Roberts has catapulted her from a starstruck newcomer, best known as Eric Roberts' little sister, to a formidable member of the elite $1 million a movie actress club, wrote Patrick Goldstein in an L.A. Times profile published the day Pretty Woman was released. Regardless of how the movie was going to do at the box office, it had already made Roberts a hot commodity in Hollywood. The last few months have been really crazy, she told the reporter. I can't have a simple dinner. I don't even have time to read a book. My whole life's mapped out for me. I just try to be grateful that I have so much work that I can be worrying about all this. It was hard to stay grateful that first summer of her stardom when she was largely stuck in North Carolina playing an abused wife who flees her monster husband in Sleeping with the Enemy. Not yet media savvy, she complained in interviews about the small town where they shot on location. The people were horribly racist and I had a really hard time, she would say. I mean, the town had no restaurants in it. I would go home and sit in the small room with my dog and say, so there's nothing to eat. You want to go to sleep? I didn't feel like I was on location anymore. I didn't feel like I had a job. I felt like this hell was where I lived. While she was in that hell, Pretty Woman came out and she instantly became a megastar. That summer, she was on the cover of Rolling Stone, sharing top billing with two live crew, whose As Nasty As They Wanna Be had become the first album to be deemed obscene in a Florida court that summer. Rolling Stone savvily used an image of a grinning Julia to sell copies containing their report on this historic censorship case. But Roberts showed right away that, smile aside, she was not a submissive starlet. Gary Marshall had been telling journalists for months that he found Roberts' emotional neediness to be unprofessional on the set of Pretty Woman. While still shooting Sleeping with the Enemy, she fired back at Marshall's charges that she had needed too much comforting 
when shooting the near-rape scene with Jason Alexander. Well, wouldn't you think so? You know, some guy comes in and basically says, I'm going to fuck you whether you like it or not, and throws you down on the floor and jumps on top of you, and you're screaming. I think you might feel a little fragile. Gary is a great hugger, a great supporter. He's really right on, but I got thrown on the floor a lot, and it didn't feel so good. I'm not going to pretend like I'm all brave and it's all really easy. I mean, it's fake up to a point, but at some point, you're going to get pushed the wrong way. You're going to get hurt. Sleeping with the enemy, she added, is full of that kind of stuff. It scares me to death. I walk out of rehearsals and all I want to do is go home and get into bed and not have anybody look at me. In shooting the film's most horrifying scene of domestic violence, she miscalculated a stunt fall and really hit her head on a marble floor. I cracked the floor so hard that I had a black eye, she recalled. I'm in so much pain, and the actor that I was working with comes up to kick the sandbag, misses the sandbag, and kicks me right in the leg. So I'm just a blithering idiot at this point. I cannot even see straight. When the take was over, the director said, I wanted to call cut. And I said, if you'd have called cut, I would have wrung your neck because I'm not going to do that again. 1990 was the year Julia Roberts became a star. But in early 1991, she became a supernova. The backlash started even before she hit her peak. This kind of instant mega fame caused extraordinary jealousy and later, schadenfreude, from the people in the industry who didn't stand to profit from her stardom. In the October 1990 issue of Playboy, women columnist Cynthia Heimel reported from a party in Malibu, where she encountered a number of industry types who she quoted anonymously. There was an anonymous director admitting that women are justified in thinking they need to get plastic surgery in order to compete for a shrinking number of opportunities for them in Hollywood. The three good parts for women this year, the director said, were all prostitutes. Of course, the best of those parts went to Roberts, who is cited by name as the enemy by an anonymous actress depicted as freaking out over the fact that People magazine published her age as 38. I watch the Academy Awards and I really resent them, the new sex girls of the minute. This alleged actress allegedly tells the Playboy columnist. This year, it's Julia Roberts. These women don't have any sense of their own collusion in the system. They take pride in being the latest wet dream for men. This, I remind you, was printed in Playboy in an issue that also included a photo spread of partially nude college students called Girls of the Big West. Julia Roberts was being held up by much of the media as the ultimate icon of 90s beauty and sex appeal. But as an icon, she had a target on her back and was forced to soak up a lot of female insecurity and hand-wringing. Meanwhile, look at the roles she was playing. There was a lot of suffering, a lot of bearing the male gaze, and feeling the brunt of male anger and insecurity. And it got to her. 
as it would probably get to any 22-year-old girl. She threw herself into her work, and the movies and her life bled into each other. Eventually, her off time completely disappeared, swallowed by celebrity. February 1991. At Show West, the annual convention where studios wine and dine theater operators, Roberts was honored as Female Star of the Year. She made what was described in Variety as a brief appearance to accept the honor, where she was greeted with a standing ovation and referred to as America's most popular living actress. As her bodyguards tried to lead her out of the auditorium, she was mobbed by autograph hounds, TV crews, and paparazzi. It was a frenzy that seemed to impress even Variety. Sleeping with the Enemy was released days later. Reviews were dismissive. Critics seemed unable to take the film's depiction of domestic violence seriously. In the LA Times, Sheila Benson accused the movie of treating, quote, the real trauma of abuse as little more than a plot device, no more grueling than Robert's job as a Hollywood Boulevard hooker in Pretty Woman. Everything that might have set Sleeping with the Enemy apart and made it memorable has been swept aside in the rush to make the movie a luxury item. Sleekly gorgeous, blankly watchable. Not unlike its star. The most you can say about Sleeping with the Enemy is that Julia looks great, wrote Marilyn Moss in Box Office. If Julia is the icon of femininity in the 1990s, then this enemy is just what we deserve. Comparatively, the Variety review was almost a rave. Roberts, quote, is once again terrific in a layered part in which she must act one role to survive her marriage, another to preserve her cover in her new life, and another to convey her real self to the audience. So solidly is audience sympathy pitched with Laura that the ending will not even be controversial shaping up as simply a defiant outcry against oppression with feminist undertones. The ending of Sleeping with the Enemy, spoiler alert for a 30-year-old movie, has Robert's battered wife shooting her maniacal husband dead. I honestly can't understand why this would be controversial, because she's clearly fighting for her life. Also, unlike in the movies from erotic 80s where we saw wronged women shoot their enemies, Roberts is convincing as someone who would never shoot a gun unless she absolutely had to and is fully overwhelmed with emotion by the act of doing so. She's not suddenly a cold, quasi-professional killer like the gun-toting women of Fatal Attraction and Jagged Edge. Because of this ending, it's safe to categorize Sleeping with the Enemy as part of the long tale of Fatal Attraction, which we're going to do a whole episode on later this season. But suffice it to say, almost all of the post-Fatal Attraction films about the roommate from hell, the nanny from hell, the fill-in-the-blank from hell, serve, like Fatal Attraction, to reinforce traditional concepts of marriage and monogamy. Sleeping with the Enemy is about a husband from hell, and it's the only one of these movies to suggest that a woman 
is better off without her husband. When this movie was released, marital rape was still not a crime in some states. Given that state of things, though it's incredibly broad, I think Sleeping with the Enemy is an effective Trojan horse, an exploitation thriller which forces total empathy with its female protagonist. Even though, as the Variety Review indicates, there was still a feeling in the culture that while maybe a wife shouldn't have to face brutal physical and emotional abuse at the hands of her husband, lethal self-defense may be a bridge too far. The recent Johnny Depp-Amber Heard trial shows that many still think spousal abuse doesn't count if the woman is anything less than a perfect victim. Julia Roberts plays as perfect a victim as you could imagine in a blunt tool of a movie that should disabuse even the staunchest traditionalist of the idea that women are their husband's property. That mattered then, and it matters now. Still, when stalking was embodied by Glenn Close's caricatured witch, reviews suggested that men needed to look closely at their own real lives and behavior. But when it was Julia Roberts in peril from her cartoonishly evil husband, in the Village Voice, Georgia Brown noted mustachioed actor Patrick Bergen's occasional resemblance to Hitler, critical eyes were rolled and the underlying issues were written off as the MacGuffin for a sub-Hitchcock thriller. That was the gist of Kirk Honeycutt's review in The Hollywood Reporter, which sniffed that the movie lacked Hitchcock's moral complexities. Still, quote, a guy can take a date to this movie with a reasonably good expectation she'll be clutching him for dear life several times. Yes, it does seem like he is sort of saying that this movie about the terror experienced by an abused spouse could maybe get men laid. These reviews largely treated Sleeping with the Enemy as an inconsequential release. In contrast, Time Magazine's Richard Corliss, who had hated Pretty Woman, used his review of Sleeping with the Enemy to take down Roberts as the star of the moment. There is an emptiness at the core of her charm, Corliss wrote. She does not seduce the viewer into wanting to know more about her character or herself. She is not the engine of movie hits, only their ornament. She will be tested with the release of Sleeping with the Enemy, a subordinary thriller. It makes for another indifferent portrait in a bland Robert's gallery. As such, go figure, it will probably make a Fort Knox bundle. Sleeping with the Enemy did make money, a lot of it. Its nearly $14 million first weekend would topple Alien as the biggest opening for a movie with a female protagonist in history. And its domestic gross would top out at $100 million, and it would make nearly that much overseas. It became the fourth film starring Julia Roberts in a row to make money. It confirmed Julia as a box office star, William Morris agent Mike Simpson said, adding, it showed that she could open a movie that isn't very good and that the movie can go big. 
But critics were fatigued with Julia, and the reviews of Sleeping with the Enemy were an early warning sign that a crash was on the horizon. The thing that seemed to accelerate Robert's stardom faster than any of her post-Pretty Woman movies, and also hasten her temporary downfall, and also ensure her legendary status long-term, was her complicated personal life. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. If there had been any doubt as to Julia Roberts' star power after the success of Sleeping with the Enemy, that was erased by the cover of the Los Angeles Times calendar section on June 9th, 1991. The Power of Julia. How did a 23-year-old actress become such a Hollywood force after only six movies? was a reported story by Elaine Dutka, which sought to explain how Roberts, quote, despite her brief track record, is considered the movie star of the moment, the only actress in a male-dominated business who can be counted on to bring in audiences. She had come a long way in the two years since, to capitalize on Mystic Pizza, her agents had sent out a photo of Roberts wearing a wet mini dress to every studio executive in town. Now, as agent Joan Heiler put it, There was Julia Roberts and everyone else. Joe Roth, chairman of 20th Century Fox, identified Roberts as, quote, the biggest female star in the world, one of less than 10 people in the world who can open a picture simply because she's in it, and she's arguably the only actress on the list. Roth added that what made Roberts so exciting to studio executives was that she, quote, broke the taboo about gender. Julia's up there with Costner, Gibson, Schwarzenegger. She can carry a picture regardless of genre, domestic or abroad. Julia's the new blood, an anonymous high-powered industry observer confirmed. No other actress in her 20s has her quotient of sex appeal. The others are all in their 30s or 40s. It had to happen. Someone had to fall out of the air. What a relief that the men who ran Hollywood had finally found a 23-year-old that they could have sexual fantasies about. The story also included naysayers, such as critic and historian Richard Schickel, who said there was nothing special about Julia's performance in Pretty Woman. It wasn't exactly a stretch, he sneered. 
adding that the movie only made over $150 million because, quote, the public wanted to plug into the fantasy. Paying Julia Roberts $7 million for the wrong picture, Schickel cautioned, is meaningless. This was a reference to the deal Roberts had already signed to play a quote-unquote half-breed in a Western called Renegades. She had been cast opposite her fiancé, Keither Sutherland, who she was scheduled to marry on the 20th Century Fox lot less than a week after the calendar cover story. Robert's love life had been a major part of her celebrity persona all along. Journalists loved to make catty comments about how she seemed to fall in love with all of her co-stars. She lived with Liam Neeson, who was 15 years her senior, after meeting him while making the flop Satisfaction. On the set of Steel Magnolias, she hooked up with co-star Dylan McDermott. She had met Sutherland making Flatliners. Their relationship coincided with the explosion of her public profile. They appeared smiling on the cover of People magazine under the headline, Julia in Love, in February 1991. But inside the magazine, an anonymous source confirmed that Julia's Oscar nomination for Pretty Woman, her second in two years, had sparked tension in her relationship. There is definitely a problem, and the problem is work-related, said the source. Kiefer is not getting offers for roles, and Julia's phone is ringing every two minutes. But she is madly in love with him, and she wants the relationship to work. Roberts needed the stability of a long-term relationship if a maddening GQ cover story from that same month was to be believed. Author Johanna Schneller presented Roberts as cagey and paranoid, a bottomless well of need who was afraid to embrace the love of her public, a chain-smoking narcissist who was either the ultimate method actor or a total fraud. The wall between what Roberts is and what she acts is dangerously thin, Schneller wrote. She asked Roberts about reports that her relationship with co-star Patrick Bergen had declined over the course of the enemy shoot. Roberts responded, I mean, when you come to work and somebody kicks the shit out of you for three hours, you don't really feel like finding out where he is and saying goodnight. The reporter used this as evidence that Roberts couldn't tell the difference between her characters and herself. If you're 23 years old and you dive in as fearlessly as Roberts does, the risk of drowning is very real, she writes. Her self-knowledge is still flimsy. What the reporter did see of what Roberts is struck her as phony. Julia, she writes, personifies the new generation of movie stars, women who call themselves actors, not actresses, who cut off their long hair and wear cotton, not mink. Only someone who doesn't want to look like a movie star, but is pretty sure of getting a good table anyway, would show up for a breakfast meeting at the Polo Lounge, the epicenter of the very nervous system that is Los Angeles, in a shapeless brown sweater with pillow hair. Robert sits there, yawning and smoking, one leg on her chair, one on the chair of an acquaintance, 
and one long arm draped over the back of a chair at the table behind her, where an older couple quietly eat, trying to figure out who she is and why she merits so much space. End quote. Nobody in the history of magazine profiling has ever wondered why a young male actor takes up so much space. The patronizing tone gets worse. Quote, Much of what will happen to her later depends on how she handles the whirlwind now. The choices she makes, as actors like to say, the struggle to decide whom he or she is going to be is something all 23-year-olds go through. Most of them, however, don't do it with millions of fans watching. The facets of her personality may come together into a diamond, or they may implode into a pile of glittering dust. But every once in a while, through the magic of the movies, someone comes along who captures the imagination of the public. They are the beginners who make us believe in the possibility of happy endings. Julia Roberts is that rare beginner. I read an interview with Roberts from 1988 in which she talks about wishing she could bring back the star system of the 1940s. And well, be careful what you wish for. This GQ profile reads like studio star management masquerading as journalism, intended to caution a potentially rebellious star into towing the line. It could be right out of a 1940s photo play. Under this kind of studio-sanctioned magnifying glass, no wonder Roberts began to accrue a reputation for being difficult with the media. She also never stopped working. In the weeks leading up to her wedding date, she was promoting a film called Dying Young and shooting her part as Tinkerbell in Hook. The wedding, a gift from the studio releasing Dying Young, was scheduled for a week before that movie's release. Fifteen months earlier, she had told the LA Times, my whole life's mapped out for me. She wasn't kidding. And then, two days before the wedding was supposed to happen, publicist Pat Kingsley put out a one-sentence statement saying Julia and Kiefer's nuptials were postponed. Over the next few days, the media completely lost their minds. Within hours, the Hollywood Hills home Roberts shared with Sutherland was mobbed by reporters and photographers. And it wasn't just tabloid or celebrity publications. There were representatives from all the big newspapers and national wire services. And they built whole stories out of nothing, such as this from a nationally syndicated item. Sutherland answered the doorbell at the home hours after the announcement, but he said, quote, I don't want to talk about it. Roberts continued shooting Hook through the end of the week. That weekend, instead of getting married, she jetted off to Dublin, telling reporters, I'm here for a quiet break and I don't really want too many people to know about it. I need a rest. I am sick. Why Dublin? The dogged gossip columnist Liz Smith stayed on the case, 
And soon she reported that not only was Julia in Dublin with Jason Patrick, Kiefer's co-star in The Lost Boys, but that Roberts had connected with him after bumping into him on an airplane to Arizona, where she was going for her bachelorette weekend. She returned to LA Monday morning and called the wedding off. Four months after their Julia in Love cover, People now ran an expose of the latest exploits of what they called a pretty fickle woman. According to the magazine, Patrick had shown up at the Tucson spa where Roberts was supposedly celebrating her impending nuptials with family and friends and, quote, after a supper of chicken piccata and peanut butter yogurt, Julia, says an eyewitness, discreetly left the dining room with Patrick, who appeared to be comforting her. A staffer at the Dublin hotel where Patrick and Roberts were staying in separate rooms reported, the engagement ring was off her finger. She looked very drawn. She had lost a lot of weight. Her hair was a pale orange, like a dye job gone wrong. People then asked the question, that was apparently on the minds of every news editor in America. Was Patrick, quote, now the boyfriend or just a friend who is a boy? Fox hoped all this publicity about the wedding getting canceled would help Dying Young, which was going to be released as scheduled a week later. Obviously, we had nothing to do with canceling the wedding, but it couldn't be more timely, said a studio source. You can't buy this type of media attention. The movie, which got dismal reviews, had a big opening weekend before, well, dying young at the box office. The $10 million the movie earned in its first frame was enough for pundits to breathe a sigh of relief that Roberts hadn't lost her golden touch. But the highly judgmental tone of the coverage involving the non-wedding may have hurt more than it helped. Her planned hiatus after completing Hook also muted her momentum. By 1993, on Movie Line Magazine's list of the 100 dumbest things Hollywood has done recently, Julia Roberts decided not to work for two years was ranked number 93. Roberts would actually appear in two more big hits over those two years, Hook and The Pelican Brief. But though she was now being paid salaries that were unprecedented for a female performer still in her early 20s, neither was a film sold on her star power alone. There wouldn't be another smash hit with nothing but her face on the poster for six years until My Best Friend's Wedding in 1997. And in between, there would be a lot of legendary flops. I Love Trouble, Mary Riley, Michael Collins. There was also something to talk about, which I think is underrated, and which allowed Roberts to gingerly dip a toe into self-referentiality. That would prove to be a profitable pond for her going forward, particularly with the 1999 double whammy of Notting Hill 
and Runaway Bride. We will talk about the latter film at the very end of Erotic 90s, but we have a long way to go before we get there. Next week, the sexual persona of Teresa Russell and two early 90s films that put it to use. One was positioned as an answer to Pretty Woman, directed by another Russell, Provocateur Ken. The other was directed by Sandra Locke, an actress-turned-director whose work was overshadowed by her very public affair with Clint Eastwood. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.